almost any profession you get into, you know, I like to say it's probably a people profession. You just didn't know that going in. And so people sometimes are surprised by that and don't always have the skills to be equipped to uh, succeed in that part of the profession. It's a cliche. Every pet comes in with a person at the end of the leash. Could your team's people skills use a brush up? Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I talk to Jim Bolton, who took years of nonprofit management experience back to his now departed father's consulting company to see if he could make a difference in the world teaching people how to communicate better. He wondered if he had anything to say to veterinary practices when I asked him. Solving conflicts, calming things down with better listening, giving feedback that actually takes? Yes, he does. Here's Jim. When I reached out to you, Jim, I was attracted to the fact that your company had a book from your late father, People Skills, and like People Skills, that is something that the veterinary profession sometimes struggles with. Not all veterinarians, not all veterinary practice managers, veterinary technicians, but there is a common cliche that many people go into veterinary medicine because they're interested in helping the animals and the people who come along are sometimes the sticky wicket in that situation. And I'm wondering from your perspective, from a company that sort of helps people with communication skills and helps people with things like that, is that a common thing, uncommon? It's actually fairly common in ways that you might not expect. I mean, okay. it, because, you know, people go into the you know veterinary business, I assume, because they love and care about animals. And just like people go in, you know, there, we work with a lot of, you know, high tech companies and you end up working with a lot of very, you know, sophisticated techie people who love that kind of work, not realizing, oh, I got to work with people around these kinds of things. And so, you know, in different domains, it's pretty much the same. And even in some, like we work in hospital settings and, in those settings, people actually, for the most part, really like the patient kinds of interactions, but not the interactions with each other. <laughs> okay. So, you know, almost any profession you get into, you know, I like to say it's probably a people profession. You just didn't know that going in. And so people sometimes are surprised by that and don't always have the skills to be equipped to uh, succeed in that part of the profession. Can I ask from your perspective, so again, this is, I think, still maybe the 30,000 foot level and, you know, we'll get into the weeds and the trenches with the specifics. But when people come to you or you go out to an organization, is it often that people are interested and excited about tackling these skills that maybe they could improve on? Or are they sort of being drug along and they don't have the yearning to learn this stuff, but they're kind of being forced by necessity? or being forced by managers or peers or, you know, the companies doing this? Do you get a lot of willing participants or people who are like, I don't really want to do this, but fine, I'll come along for the ride? Yeah, you probably can't hear my smile right now, but <laughs> it's definitely the latter. Okay. It's usually because there is friction 
in either the organization that we're working with or on a key team or among key players that are getting to the point where whatever's happening is becoming more of a problem than the problems they're trying to resolve from a, you know, whatever the business or organizational purpose is. So there are people who are kind of recognize, hey, I, I know I need to, you know, whatever I do, I, I want to get better at kind of my relationships and getting results with and through other people because that is a transferable skill no matter where I go. And But most of the time when, when we're involved, it's because there is some kind of a challenge or sometimes it can be a change. You know, we working with an organization right now that is merging two small, you know, practices into one and they all have different communication patterns and styles that work in those smaller you know, units. But now that they have to work together, they need kind of a common set of practices that they can use with each other. So it's usually trying to solve a problem or put some communication practices in place so people can be more effective and successful. How often do people discover through, so there's an issue with them or someone else and they kind of come to you or the organization brings you in and there's a problem. How often is the problem, hey, we could institute some tools and new practices and, and we work on this, skills will improve and these things will be smoothed over. Do people ever get to the end of kind of learning these communication skills and realizing whatever this issue is with the other person, I actually can't solve it with communication skills. There's a more profound issue. That actually, that does happen. You know, effective communication is, like I say, like necessary, but not always sufficient. Okay. Because there can be, you know, for instance, a lot of times people may be in a role where they just can't be successful. They're not set up to do that. And no amount of communication then is going to be able to help them be able to, you know, rise above whatever their challenges or shortcomings are to be able to be successful. So, Sometimes you can't really know that until you engage with people and understand where they're getting stuck and try to give them feedback to improve. And you just find then that they're really not a good fit. And there's actually a very interesting process called situational leadership. If you haven't heard of that, Ken Blanchard, I think, is the author of that with uh, Paul Hersey. It's fairly old, but it's, it's a way of understanding kind of where that person's performance ability is and that you then can, as a supervisor of some kind, can match your coaching style or your management style to that person in ways that can help them grow or find out that they they can't perform. So so there are a variety of ways around that. But uh, yeah, communication is important, but it doesn't solve every problem, unfortunately. I kind of want to dig into two directions on this communication thing, but I guess yeah. I'll start where I think something I've been working on a lot lately and thinking about is internally how all this communication, all the responses I give to what people say and do around me is really a lot of habitual patterns that have worked for me in the past and things that I'm comfortable with and ways of talking that make me happy. So I think it's interesting <laughs> you're talking about situational leadership. That always sounds very hard to me to do taking your habitual patterns and realizing this is how I would want to respond and be responded to, but this person needs something slightly different. That's always like a hitch and a hard thing to do. So I don't know. It feels like the first step has to be internally understanding yeah. what your patterns are. Well, I think you're really onto something because 
You know, first of all, the thing is that we're communicating when we're around other people, we're communicating all the time, verbally, non-verbally, you know, it's just, we're sending out signals. We might give people a look or a smile, you know, it can be uh, all of the above and we don't necessarily recognize it. And the other thing to your point about, you know, you have your habits. Well, we've kind of developed our habits self-taught in that kind of a way. We've learned what works for us and the types of relationships we have. And so we keep doing those kinds of things. And some of those habits are going to be effective, but some may not, or some may work with some people and some may not work with other people. Some people, for instance, they really want to just sort of like, hey, let's get down to it and talk business. Other people want to establish rapport. Hey, we haven't talked in a while, Brendan. How are you doing? What's new with you? You know, as a way of like, hey, let's connect. And if you get people who have these different kind of styles and orientations together, that can create friction. So just understanding that, you know, your way isn't everybody's way is the first thing. And then understanding that there are ways in which we all can get in the way of effective communication with other people because our habits aren't necessarily going to align with other people's needs. And even if we're trying to get our point across, the way you said, I think was like, oh, I talk in the way that makes me happy. And we all tend to do that thinking that that's going to be the most effective in terms of getting our message across. But if you really think about instead of how can I speak so that somebody else can really hear and understand what it is that I want to get across. So you're almost then start, you know, speaking or thinking about how people are going to be receiving it from their frame of reference versus your frame of reference. That's kind of the big shift that goes on that can help, you know, you become more sensitized to what's effective and what's not effective in the way I'm communicating. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. So, and it makes me think of, okay, let's think of a common situation that happens in a veterinary practice, which is that people are highly trained and especially in the treatment area, maybe the receptionist in the front, they employ different kinds of communication skills than people do internally in the team. And then if you're talking to a client in the exam room, you probably employ a different kind of communication than you would use again with the team in the back. One of the things that happens is people who are focused on a patient. And so the patient is an understanding language going around. And so it's almost like those situations where people complain about what nurses and anesthesiologists and doctors sometimes say when people are under anesthesia, when the patient isn't aware of what we're saying, it kind of doesn't matter what we're saying. They can't hear it. Right. So they're focused on the patient's needs But it's almost like they become sort of medical tools themselves and they focus on high efficiency. So I wonder if, I mean, again, the people who focus on engineering or computer science may also be like, what is the shortest, quickest way to solve this problem? And that short circuits all the people not understanding what directions are or people who are frazzled or people who are sad in that moment or people who didn't hear what you said. They kind of get frustrated and they're focused on speed and efficiency, doing this right. And anything that gets in that way starts making people upset. So this is a mm-hmm. this is a common thing. There will be someone who maybe gets their dander up and gets ramped up when there are mistakes made or there's miscommunication and people aren't moving as fast as they would like them to. Yeah. Do you find is, if people present themselves as that, if they say, well, everyone says I'm snippy or I'm curt with directions, is it often there's just a communication style misalignment? What, what kind of things happen in a situation like that? 
There's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let me unpack that a little bit because there, okay. there are a couple of things you said, I think. So one is that we oftentimes create shorthand when we're working with other people who understand that shorthand. And that can be highly effective, you know, and that can be very technical talk. And it is exactly as you said, it's the most efficient, effective way of communicating around some things that can be very specific. So as long as you're you know, you're kind of talking to somebody who's wired in that way and and understands that and can appreciate that. That's terrific. When you shift, so if you're working with a you know kind of a colleague, let's say in the operating room or something like that, that's one thing. If you then turn and then talk to you know use that sort of same style with you know let's say a pet owner or something like that, then you know their focus is less. You know, they may want to know what tell me what what's going on or tell me what that procedure was, but Underneath that, there's a lot of potential anxiety. How did it go well? What did, you know, they're worried about there's more of an emotional load that they're experiencing because it's very personal to them. And that very efficient type of communication can overlook the emotional component sometimes, which for people who are under stress can that times is oftentimes the most important thing or the more important thing. And until that can be addressed or included in the communication or at least acknowledged, people have a hard time getting over that. Even they, they don't recognize they're triggered in that way, but that's just kind of the brain playing tricks on us to like, oh yes, I'm hyper-rational, but I'm really anxious that about this thing that's happening with my pet or this uh, animal that I love. And so, and we find that too, exactly uh, the same way, for instance, with physicians, if they, come out and start talking to parents about here's the procedure that, you know, we just did. And, you, you know, but the parents are like, okay, okay, okay. I'm trying to follow that. <laughs> right. But are they going to be okay? You know, there's this bigger question, this bigger need. And so just being attuned to both of those channels, the sort of the informational channel, and then the fact that there's sort of an underlying emotional channel and making sure that there's both are getting acknowledged to the extent that the emotional, you know, that people are feeling emotional about things. And that can be, you know, not just in customer situation, high stress in a practice setting is, you know, there's a lot to do and it's, you know, there's a lot of people involved and there's, as you said, there's efficiency, but you may have a lot of, you know, different appointments in a given day and people get stressed out. And they then stop communicating well, unless they're able to just sort of bleed off the emotion, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I love the way you talked sort of about why you might have to recalibrate the way you talk in the jargon, the lingo, the efficient speak you use in the treatment area. And you're going to have to slow down or think differently about how you talk to a pet owner. But then you added that thing on at the end that said, but then if you add on high stress in the back area, where normally we understand all our jargon and lingo... But people just start, they don't know they're getting nervous, or they don't know they're getting anxious, or they don't know they're getting mad and frustrated. But the people around them start to notice. And so it's hard in those situations where sometimes it's life and death. Sometimes they feel like they have to move fast because there are critical things on the line. It's almost like the sort of slowing down and noticing how you feel that feels inefficient in the moment. Right. I mean... So for these doctors, when you hear people in medical practices or real high-intensity life-and-death situations, do they ever push back and say, I mean, I understand I'm curt. I understand I'm short. I understand I start going really fast. But that's what we have to do because that's the situation here. 
How do they find space? Where do they build the space also so that everybody feels like at some point they could be heard about what happened there, even if you can't talk about it then? Right. So, yeah, I think you're putting your finger on a couple of things. Number one is it is almost like this kind of comes with the territory. So suck it up and let's do it. You know, I mean, this is not for the faint of heart. And we've got, you know, it can be life and death and there is more work to be, you know, we've got to take care of more patients, et cetera. But the trick is, is if once people get in the psychological term is dysregulated, so their emotions become dysregulated, they stop performing as well because they're thinking or they're kind of, they have a lot more, you know, the signal to noise metaphor. There's a lot more noise that's about how they're feeling about something and that's taking parts of their attention. And so we actually created a a little program for uh, physicians at the beginning of the pandemic because, you know, all of a sudden they're just getting overwhelmed with COVID cases and, and it's the same kind of dynamic I think you're talking about. And what we found is just like taking literally a one minute check-in a couple of times a day. How's it going? Are you doing all right? I seem a little stressed out. Anything, you know, is kind of on your mind, but, and not that it doesn't have to be this like long therapeutic conversation, you know, I'm not talking about that, but just allow somebody to say, I'm really upset that, you know, we weren't able to save, you know, the pet earlier today. And I just, I can't shake it. And so, you know, that just almost by saying that out loud and having somebody else hear it, it kind of helps people become more regulated. They get more into sort of the present moment instead of carrying around this experience that happened earlier in the day or earlier in the week. Or sometimes people have things going on at home and, you know, it's difficult to kind of focus and be at their best. So these little moments of just checking in and you can sort of set it up so that it's like, hey, I just want to check in. Let's, you know, sort of can even make it a ongoing conversation. Just want to do a one minute check in. How are you doing? Anything you need, anything you need to say to be able to kind of move forward, you know, more, you know, kind of catch a breath, take a breath and then get back to work. And having a couple of people do that with each other, it was surprisingly, you'd be surprised at how much, you know, the medical professionals we were working with said that that was just a useful thing to acknowledge because there is high stress in these kinds of environments and to not acknowledge that, you know, just can sometimes add to the stress, especially if people are feeling like, oh, everybody else is keeping it together. So I guess I should too. Recruiting the perfect candidate for your vet practice in a reasonable amount of time is a seemingly impossible task nowadays. Due to COVID and other trends, many practices are chronically understaffed and just can't keep up with customer demands, struggling to fill vacancies. If you want to improve your hiring process and start building your team effectively, then join me, Dr. Dave Nichol, for a two-part masterclass on how to hire effectively in a post-COVID world. First, I'll show you how to avoid the common pitfalls of hiring and save you a lot of stress and money. I'll then give you a framework that will help you enhance your current listings and rapidly attract quality talent. Now, this won't be easy, but with the knowledge you'll gain from these two sessions, you'll be well on your way to building that high-performing team with a great practice culture. 
So I'd like to invite you to join me live for this digital event on April the 5th and April the 12th, that's 2022, 7pm British summertime. Yes, it's summertime again, almost. 2pm Eastern if you're in the US. Use the link in the episode description to reserve your spot for free, but hurry, places are limited. Now back to the show. Did you have pushback? Because I imagine I don't want to put people in just two buckets because people are very complex. But if there are people who have the attitude, look, this is a hard job. If you have something to say, or you're feeling overwhelmed. You need to tell us. You need to say that. If you yeah. have something to say, you pipe up and say it. And then there's the other people who say, well, I didn't feel comfortable saying that. And then the people on the other side are like, I don't understand. So if you're frazzled, you're anxious, or I said something that hurt your feelings, you should have said something right then. You should feel brave enough to come out. Look, we need to be brave for this job. We need to be resilient. And so there's kind of the people who are kind of the buck up and suck it up people. Yep. And the other people who are like, well, I just don't feel comfortable with that. And I feel that the- we're hearing that there is also a generational shift and people, a new yeah. generation might be want more listening, want more what an older generation might regard, oh my God, it's a bunch of wimpy handholding. That's right. But it's creating psychological safety and all those things. So I don't know, maybe speak to that conflict. And if you heard, if you got feedback, if people in the medical, in these high intensity situations, that people had those kind of conversations. Again, I keep saying, put your finger on it. But you, when you use the term psychological safety, there's actually some super interesting research about that. So let me answer the thing about the pushback first. Okay. And then I want to come back to the psychological safety. Yeah, everybody gets, we get pushback. You know, I've worked with, you know, executives who are running, you know, like 2,000, 3,000 person operations. And they're like, you got to be kidding me. You know, like, (laughs) I've been super successful to this point doing things this way. And we focus on results. And that's why I'm here. And now you're telling me I got to be all like, nice to people and listen to people and coach people, you know, and it's just, it's not kind of the way they came up. But again, you know, we're kind of getting back to the thing you brought up earlier, which is like, what are the habits that make you comfortable? Well, that's going to work for a certain period of time, but I don't know if any of your listeners are familiar with the concept of employee engagement that uh, Gallup has run. They have, they've done, I don't know, for about 20 years now, this research that shows that if people are not treated, they don't experience their treatment as being fair or respectful on balance, they don't show up in the same way in terms of offering their discretionary energy or time. You get some, it's called presenteeism a lot, which is people show up, but they're just doing, going through the motions versus like really giving more of their all. And they're not necessarily doing it intentionally. It's, these are just kind of the human responses to feeling like I'm not really being feeling like I'm cared for in this, you know, that anybody cares about my opinion or, you know, kind of my role and that that has any validity. Yeah. So I mentioned working with those like high end, you know, those very or senior leaders and they push back a lot until they find out it works. Okay, <laughs> And they can actually be more effective when they're not like yelling at people and ordering people around. And it is a shift and it's a bit of a leap of faith for them because they haven't ever had an experience of working with people that way. But once they kind of get a sense of, oh, there is this other way and people are really responding and people are contributing more. 
people are taking more initiative. Who knew? So it really does make a significant difference. But the other thing, you know, I did end up working with one of the um, top uh, cancer researchers in the world in a particular cancer uh, specialty. And his point was exactly what you're saying, which is, look, I am literally world class at what I do. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And so he is. And he's got a lot of turnover in his team that takes a lot of time. <laughs> it takes a lot of his time to get people in. And, you know, so there are these kind of subtle costs. If you just kind of are like, hey, it's my way or the highway. Let's just keep going. So I would just invite anybody who's kind of having that reaction. You know, you don't have to like the other thing people are worried about are like, oh, I've got to change my whole management style. I got to, you know, yes. and my whole approach to leadership and everything else. And now I've got to, you know, it's going to be slow and I have to get everybody's opinion before I make a decision. <laughs> and that's not at all the case. It's just making things interactive so that people are feel like you're talking with them instead of at them. And that shift can make a pretty big difference. So let me just pause there, see what your thoughts are. And then because that's sort of a good lead into the psychological safety comment you made. I want to talk about psychological safety. So I especially for those leaders. So you had a leader who was like, I understand what you're saying. This works for me. We're world class here. It's clearly working. Yes, we have some problems. If people don't like it, they can move on. Yep. There's probably this spectrum of you won't adjust anything, but you're getting clear feedback that the people who work with you, a lot of them don't like it. Right. Or, okay, now I have to change everything. And what this situational leadership thing, I have to adjust my leadership depending on who it is on any given day. Like, how am I going to do that? Is there a first step that really when you bring people in and there are issues like that, there's a the first skill you want them to work on. What do they want? I mean, we talked about previously listening, but is there a first step? This is the first thing I want you to do. What do you ask them to do? Well, you know, the trick there, Brennan, is it's, yeah. uh, it's kind of like people have, depending on their own individual kind of strengths and, you know, it's working for them and what isn't, those things might be different. But the, the thing I would probably start with, so, you know, I'm sure we'll get to listening a little bit here as well. But in terms of this thing about, hey, do I have to do everything different and in this wholesale way? The answer to that is no. I would start with the one thing I would start with is on the important issues. And this, again, would be more of a in a staff situation versus with a customer situation. Although it could work then, too, is start by turning expectations you have of people into agreements. Okay. And one of the things we ask people when we kind of start this part of our training is like, what's the difference between those two words? And some of the things people say is, well, you know, I guess an expectation is it's a thought versus an agreement, which implies that there's been a conversation. Yes. An expectation is often a one-way thing. An agreement is like a two-way thing because you've had to literally get an agreement about something. If there's like these pain points with a somebody in a practice, which is like, they just, why don't they know how to do it the right way? They should know how to do it the right way. You get to be right if you want to think that way, but it's, they're still not going to do it the right way if you have an, a, a conversation with them about it and lay out for them. Let me just be without, and again, if you can do it without sort of 
an emotional load, like you should really know this, but now I have to spell it out for you. (laughs) Right. You know, if you can just say, hey, let me explain to you specifically what I want and be really specific in terms of behaviors or outcomes. I need you to do this by the end of the day. And instead of by the end of the day, maybe it's by 430 because the end of the day can mean different things to different people. Be really concrete and tangible and make sure that you're checking in with the other person to say, are you understanding what I'm saying? Do you have any questions about that? And then tell them the rationale. This again goes back to that employee engagement thing, survey and research is that a lot of times people are told what to do, but not why it's important. And so they don't really understand some of the context that we as the people who are making those delegations and assignments do. And that can get in the way of their doing it correctly or effectively or consistently. So if you tell them what you want them to do and why, and then the third part of that conversation that we recommend is to ask the person what could get in the way of you keeping this agreement, which may seem crazy because it's sort of like, oh, let me let them raise objections. <laughs> right. I'm going to, here's the part where you give me excuses. Exactly. This. Exactly. But, but guess what? They're going to come up anyway. So if you raise them proactively, I call it proactive problem solving. So if you raise it proactively and then you're like, oh, okay. So there's some days that that may be really tricky for you to do by 430. What needs to happen so that you could honor that? Or maybe it's like, okay, so maybe on Wednesdays we can, five is fine. But you problem solve those issues so that you're taking those challenges off the table and, and because they are going to get in the way. So if there was a starting place for a lot of people, once you do that, it reduces the friction going forward because then you're not managing problems that are showing up because you haven't had that conversation. People know it's expected. And then you can kind of reinforce it. And if it's not going well, you can say, hey, remember we had that conversation you know, last week? What's going on? And, oh, yeah, I forgot, or I'm still trying to get, you know, get in the flow. You can have that conversation, but at least you've got kind of that uh, stake in the ground, so to speak, that you've had the conversation, you've gotten their commitment, you've got, they've been involved in the discussion, you've solved some of those predictable problems, not all the, you know, there are other things will show up, but right. then once you kind of do that for a while, then it's kind of a set it and forget it. People will do that. And as long as you recognize them for it every now and then, you know, so that they actually are like, hey, that actually made a difference. That provides them additional encouragement. So I would say that's for a lot of people in high stress situations, that that would be a starting point. Hot on people skills? Get your courses, get your books, especially the upcoming new edition of Roger Bolton's People Skills. Get a chance to talk to Jim himself at ridgetraining.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review on iTunes. Tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want more? You're in luck. Even more brilliance from Jim in the extended version exclusively for our leaders community. Learn more at vetxinternational.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. 
An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.